started this little teaching group for my lethal sort of experiments to share it with the students, and that eventually got me kicked out of the school. Oh, no, really? Uh, Print friends, and welcome to Pine Copper Live, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Live website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. This week, my guest is Patrick Wagner of Blackheart Press, and oh boy! I envy you that you are about to get to hear this interview for the first time. This is a fun one. I mean, sure, we talk about dances of death and looming environmental catastrophes and the end of the universe, and not to mention a devastating fire that destroyed his entire archive of all the work he'd ever created ever. But trust me, Patrick is 100% a good time. And despite the at times heavy content, the main theme that runs through this whole episode is the incredible connections that printmakers create around the world over our shared passion, and the lengths we go to to share knowledge and build community. Patrick takes us from Japan to Switzerland to Nigeria and back to a hole in the ice in Stockholm. We also get into the Art Sauna project. While not directly related to printmaking technically, I do have a huge conceptual and logistical crush on it, and it's a really interesting study in human connections and one might even be so bold as to say, relational aesthetics. The icing on the cake for this episode is Patrick's voice, which is probably one of the most relaxing things you've ever heard. I don't know, maybe it's all the saunas. Just a quick reminder before we dive in, the best way to get in touch with Pine Copper Lime is through my website at pinecopperlime.com or my Instagram, which is pine.copper.lime. I also have a Patreon up now, and if you haven't at least gone to the page to check out the video that I made for it, you really should. It's probably one of the funniest things I've ever created. And by created, I mean stumbled into. You'll just have to watch it and see. Make sure you stick through the end. It's only about a minute and 20 seconds, which I know is about 46 minutes in internet time, but trust me, it's worth it. And as always, there's a link in the show notes. And if Patreon's not your thing, hey, I get it. But it would really help me out if you left a review on your podcast app of choice, or maybe told a printmaker or two that Pine Copper Lime is out there and looking for more listeners. Alright, without further ado, here's Patrick. Hi, Patrick. How's it going? Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I have been following your work and all your projects as I can get my head around them on Instagram for some time. I'm really curious about what what you do and your background and that kind of thing and how it sort of intertwines. So would you mind just giving yourself a little introduction? So... I usually I say my name is Patrick, but actually that's not true. My name is Patrick, Patrick Wagner. I'm a German printmaker and I live in Sweden since the last five years. I was always interested in prints, I suppose, um, but I lived next to a printmaking museum while I was studying English. Mm. 
mm. for about five years, and I sort of went there monthly. It's the Horst Jansen Museum in Oldenburg, Germany. Uh, Horst Jansen is one of the late greats German printmakers. You don't have to agree with his persona so much or his works, but somehow like that was the right time uh, for me. And I, I, you know, I literally lived next door in the Pferdemarkt. So I went there once a month and uh, after five years of studying English, I was like, okay, I need to drop out and uh, <laughs> go to art school and learn printmaking. And that's what I did. Enrolled in art school, got in in a really small school in northern Germany, Mutesius Kunsthochschule Kiel. I think they had like a, you weren't allowed to go to the print shop for the first year or something. You had to do like a foundation year or something. But, you know, rules are sort of arbitrary at times. So I just went there anyway first week and was like, I need to learn printmaking because uh, I lived next to the Horst Jansen Museum for five years. And um, it turned out that the... Um, the master printer or the guy running the print shop, Dietmar Hagedorn, uh, was a huge fan of Horst Janssen and just like, he's, he's a big person. So he just lurched forward into this bear hug and, uh, and was like, you've come to the right place, son type, you know, like he didn't say that, but that was like, he conveyed that he was like, yeah, you know, just come on in, like, let's get started. And, um, and that's, that was, you know, that was my, my official welcome into the world of printmaking was this uh, hug, which I am still terrified of and fondly remember at the same time. And it just kind of went on from there into where it is now. To, to sort of round this out, uh, for the last five years, I've been teaching lithography at the Royal Institute of Art in Stockholm. Um, that was the reason why I moved to Sweden. And uh, they've, this December or December 2018, they've decided to... I suppose they would like to say it's on hiatus. Um, to me, it's like they've closed the shops mm. um, and let me go. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm I'm looking. If you if you need a, <laughs> if if anyone listening to this needs a printmaker, hire me. Yeah, you um, heard you heard it here first. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, that's that's where I've been, and uh, uh, and that's where I still am based in Sweden. And so was lithography your main focus in school as well? Or how did you come to, um, to the mm. most alchemy of printmaking? Don't hate me, but uh, it's actually I love uh, etching the most, kind mm. of. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's the nicest. No, I, that was the shop. The shop in, in Germany was, was an intaglio shop. It's got all this, it's kind of cheesy, but it's got all the alchemy parts, right? It's like... Yeah. It smells of tar and varnish and, and turpentine. And it's kind of cool. And you get to hold a flame under your plate and melt on asphaltum or rosin or whatever. And uh, I was just like, yeah, this is, this is it. Um, so I, I don't think I started with lithography on, uh, before Romania. Uh, I went on exchange in 2008 uh, to study in Bucharest, Romania, because they just joined the European Union. In 2007, and so it was um, possible for me to transfer there as an as an exchange student. And um, I think I was like that year they had two new students, one from Italy and and one from Germany, me. And um, they had a litho shop, but no teaching. So it, it kind of ended up with me reading Sinefelder's instructions <laughs> from the library because they had a German book on it, uh, which they wouldn't give out. So I had to like copy it and then go to the shop and there's a group of students that was into experimenting so we kind of tried to make some lithos and then I had a friend 
from Minnesota back then. He was, I think he was working at High Point at the time. Mm. Super generous with his time and sending me like, long email explanations that make perfect sense when you know what you're doing and that are really abstract when you've never made lithography before and like buff in a thin layer of gum. You know, what, what does that mean? Right. <laughs> like when you see someone, it's like so easy. And um, when you try to figure this out from an email, you're like, okay, I don't, you know, that's just, I don't know what buff is. Like, I don't know what that word means. Let's just do something with the gum. Let's make it thin, however that works. And from that, I was always interested in how do you teach and how do you communicate this skill? Because, you know, with everything, if if you know, if you've done it, it looks super easy. How do you tell that to others that that don't have this ease in their hands yet or something? So it was quite nice. I kind of started this little teaching group for my litho sort of experiments to share it with the students and that eventually got me kicked out of the school oh no really uh, yeah you weren't supposed to to pass on knowledge like that and uh it's it's true it's uh, they were like you can't you can't do this anymore um it was really fun really uh, really good time i'm not not bashing the people or the school but they also didn't make it easy and that was kind of i was like okay good it's it's good when it's it's safe and nice and welcoming environments that you're in and that kind of think that's something that I carry later into my teaching. Mm-hmm. Like it's pointless to be hoarding knowledge and not passing it. Well, I feel like that there's a little bit of that knowledge hoarding tradition in printmaking, you know, if going back into the history of it, of people, you know, back when it was sort of a, a science full of this proprietary knowledge that certain people, if you knew how to do something, you would have that edge above the rest. But I think for the most part, we've we've evolved beyond that. And it's it's really nice. It seems to be such an open community. I think for me, this was like this, uh, like I said, like this initial hug of, you know, in this case, one person. But it's also the community because I seem to spend way too much time in front of my computer mm. just looking at printmaking stuff. <laughs> um, and that led to reaching out to a couple of people. I remember... There's this Japanese guy that was uploading this um, 33-part series on how he processes and rolls up and etches a stone. And mm. this, this, this guy was called Itasu Lito. I, uh, Itasu I know Lito. him. I've actually, I actually got to meet him and see his studio once. Right. He's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. So I think like 10 years ago, I sent him an email, you know, based on these YouTube videos or something. Like, I was like this is amazing. This is so cool. Thank you for putting this out because I have, you know, I'm just teaching myself. I had no idea. And he was super generous. He replied, you know, he didn't, he didn't hoard his knowledge. Mm. First of all, he went through the trouble, right? He knows perfectly well how to etch a stone, but he went uh, through the trouble to make these videos, to, you know, produce them, to set up the camera, to do all this work. It's kind of, it's way more work when you're also looking at, have a camera standing there. And then he gets this random emails from these German people and he's like, guten Tag, because he knows like three words of German. And suddenly you have a friend in Japan and, and they're sharing. And, you know, I've been at his place now three times, I think, because he's teaching or he has been. I'm not sure if he still is. The last years he's been teaching at Geidai, Tokyo. Yeah, that's probably where you've met him or that's where most people visit him, the shop in Ueno. And uh, it's amazing that there's this sharing kind of going on. And that, that led to me making my Black Heart Press Instagram and before that, the Tumblr, which is still there. Mm. But yeah, there, there's always content being put out. And I was like, okay, I need to do this too. I, I want to do this too as, as soon as I have something worthy to tell or to show. 
like I'd like to take the effort, take the time to to put it out there again. Mostly because I'm doing the research anyway. You know, if I, if I look up some some prints in some collection, I might as well just post about them and and you know, as, as a memory to myself, uh, but also as a reference for others that you know might stumble across and be like, oh yeah, that's cool. Look, there's this person that does this, you know, things or something. And yeah. uh, you know, if you've done the work, you might as well just let others benefit from it, I feel. And I think there's also something to be said for no matter how well you think you know something, teaching it and breaking it down for someone else, you learn it from a different angle in a way that can be super beneficial too. So it's, I think right. it benefits the teacher and the student. Yeah, or just see how, yeah, exactly, or how to see how things are done different in different places. Yeah. Because I think we all know we've, everyone who's learned printmaking learned it one way uh, from the, the people that you had access to at that time were doing it. And so you're kind of like, okay, this is the holy way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to do this and you got to do that. And you go to, to another shop and people are like, sorry, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, I, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing it the right way. And people are like, no, <laughs> not at all. Like this will never work. And you're like, oh, you know, Let's not let's not argue about that because I'm fairly sure it will work. And then, in their most well-meaning way, people will be like, "Okay, here, this is how you do it," and you now have two routes that lead to the same kind of goal. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, okay, good, there isn't one truth. In uh, as nice as this would be, there's you always make some compromise or something works because of you know climate or access to local chemistry or, or other things or just to custom. Yeah, it, it's really amazing. Um, the last years I've been kind of trying to soak up as much knowledge from this Swiss printmaker, Ernst Hanke. He's been in, in some of the last videos and I, I've never gotten this many comments on the way he etches stones because it's just, it's the hottest etches I've ever seen put on onto stones, but he knows what he's doing. He's, you know, he's, he, he does this since he's 15 and he's 73 now. So like he really knows what he's doing. And I, if you show this to people, they're like, okay, good. So you burned your entire washes. So what are you, how are you going to, how are you going to redraw your stone? And you're like, no, actually this works, but you know, this works because the person knows what they're doing. And, um, that's, that's so cool to see. And it's so humbling, uh, at, at any given time to realize that, you know, there's, there's so much more to, to pick up and, and to hone and kind of fine tune. It is funny how non-standardized the printmaking practice is. You know, it seems like something that's been going on, you know, in the case of etching for 500 years, that it would have, mm. oh, the kinks or the, all the little nuances would have been worked out, but there's always something more to learn. There's always some weird little trick hidden away in a corner of Thailand that you haven't heard right. of yet. And I think yeah. it's part of what makes the practice and being connected to the larger culture of it so rewarding. No, exactly. And and also that, um, you know, there's these big, big differences in in possibilities based on, you know, how your shops are set up. But they're just differences, not limitations. Mm -hmm. um, like I have this kind of, have these nice videos playing in my head at the same time. And one is, um, you can find it on YouTube, I think it's from High Point. It's, uh, oh God, I forgot his name, like uh, Cole Rogers, I think the master printer there. Uh, he's coating a screen in some of the videos. And he's just like, you know, coating it super nice in like this one swift motion. And then mm -hmm. I think he turns to the camera and says like, this is how it's done. 
uh, this is how you code a screen or something, and which is, you know, th this is how this is how you code a screen in one swift, nice motion. And there's this other video of this guy uh, sitting on the floor in a shop in India, and he just pours emulsion into, like, onto the screen, and he has, I think it's a credit card, and he just sort of uses this little plastic card to coat the entire screen, to move the emulsion around and coat it, and then smoothen it out from the backside in in what is obviously a very trained and skilled motion. And you were like, yeah, of course, if, you know, if they had the setup that you, you can have elsewhere, you, you'd do it different. But for both people are screen printing at the end of the day. And one is a pro shop and the other is, um, I don't know what they're printing for, for local merchants or something, but it, it works. It's amazing. And, you know, that goes from after studying in Bucharest, I went to Bergen. And I mean, it's like, it's been night and day, of course. Bucharest was like me and the other students, we'd cook up our own um, hard ground in the basement. Mm. Uh, so we'd, we'd just you know, take nafta, tar, terps, um, beeswax and some other stuff and kind of just, you know, have this like hot plate and boil it in this in this bucket and, you know, just like lift our T-shirts over our noses and be like, right, you know, now we're safe, <laughs> I suppose. And then you go to and, you know, make great prints there, but it was literally impossible to get anything else but steel to work on. Mm. Um, so you had, you know, we all had to have belt senders and kind of, you know, get the steel as smooth as possible because there, there was no access. And then after that, the next half a year was Bergen. And um, that was where Jan Peterson had been teaching. I think he's now teaching in Oslo. Um, he wrote these great books about Fodegavur and he had set up the shop, the, the art academy there, and he was just setting up Trukkeriet, uh, which is a center for contemporary printmaking in Bergen. Uh, so you have two spaces in this town that are perfect for making Fodegavurs, mm. copper plate Fodegavurs, which is, they have these nice climate control setups. It's kind of these like airbrush thingies in the room that keep the moisture at exactly 80 oh percent if that's gosh. what you wanted and uh, you have this plate whirler for your gelatine uh, paper and and that it dries the right way and you have a plate spinning and it's amazing of course and you can do these works elsewhere but it's so much harder to fight conditions so when i was later studying in helsinki and i wanted to make photographers it was actually the the smartest way i felt was to go back to norway and you know to book shop time there and uh make the works there because I'd be like, okay, I can, I can waste two months of my time trying to set up like a perfect environment for Vodogavura in Helsinki, or I can just go somewhere else where it's conductive or that type of work. And, and I think that's kind of something that that's always good to keep in mind is that people in Romania were etching the same, you know, the same passion than yeah. you do elsewhere and, and get great results. So the good shop didn't automatically mean great works, nor did you know, the adverse conditions mean that, that the work was shitty. And I think yeah. sometimes it can even be the other way around, you know, that because if people are fighting through difficulties, they have such a fire in their belly to create these images. Um, right. that they can do really incredible things where if everything is just easy, there's a kind of casualness about your practice that you can fall into, I think. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's why I uh, I was so I got so into these works of uh, Nigerian printmaker Bruce Onobrakpeya because I think he learned printing somewhere in London or in England at least. I'm, I'm I'm it's kind of vague on his biography and I'm I'm not fully up to date, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm 
maybe maybe that's not 100% true, but I think he learned somewhere in Europe and he went back uh, to Nigeria and, you know, got the wrong assets and got all sorts of other problems because, you know, it wasn't as easily available as it was where he, he learned. But that led to some really amazing kind of discoveries where they were using epoxy to fix holes in a plate. Hmm. You know, they had etched the plate too strong and it got in a hole. And um, I think he took it to a car body shop where a friend of his was working and they were like, oh, that's cool. We can patch it up with epoxy, which they did. So the hole was fixed, but then the epoxy doesn't etch. So you had to carve it. And where the drops of epoxy are on the plate, they're now relief. And so he creates these works that are called deep etchings. And they're, they're amazing. I think he works on sort of several layers of topography in that plate. Like he wipes parts of it in Taglio and he rolls up others because they're, they're higher. And they make these amazing works. And so that only was created because of conditions that existed in his shop at the time, uh, at the availability. So always trying to keep that in mind when making works. And people are like, oh, what should we buy? And you're like, oh, <laughs> just, just take what you have. Like, it's, it's good and we'll, we'll make it work somehow. So speaking of the Nigerian printmakers, you were doing printmaking interviews long before Pine Copper Lime came along. So um, I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit and how that process was for you and, um, and who you got to talk to during that time. Yeah, it's like, you know, but it was, it was completely different than Pine Copper Lime. So um, <laughs> way, like I was way less professional and way more based out of um, I, just curiosity. Like I said, you know, you you spend too much time online and looking up things and then you're like, okay, good. There's only that much material. I need more. Okay. You know, there's two books on this guy and, and in, in uh, Bruce on a Brackpayas case, I think he's safe to say he's he's in his 80s now. So a lot of the material that exists on him probably exists pre-digital in some some way. And it's every, every once in a while you kind of forget that, oh, yeah. Like stuff exists offline too. You just have to, you know, you just can't access it from yeah. the convenience of, of your home. Yeah, and uh, and that that's true for German collaborative shops that for some reason work very different than than Americans. And that's that's true for a lot of other, you know, people that have either not been fortunate enough to have content created or you know have, have worked before content creation time and like digital content creation time. So I was like, okay, I need to reach out to people, but also. I need to give it some sense, you know, it, it has to have some format that kind of benefits others because I'm spending a lot of time preparing for interviews or something and then doing them and sort of, and also knowing how much of a sloth I am. It's kind of, it's kind of good to know that you have something, some kind of goal to work towards to, because uh, otherwise it can just be a phone call mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. I know it and then, then I still have to generate you know, value out of this, or at least it feels like I should because it's, I've made all this prep work for it. Um, and so I did text-based interviews kind of like that were on the Tumblr. I tried to do this in a larger format for my MA project and it kind of, I, I kind of had to sh shortcut it at certain times because I at some point realized that this was, I was in over my head. Um, but long story short, I contacted a couple of people and uh, Bruce being kind of maybe the person that was most important to me because I had only been given a book about him with like black and white uh, images and a short story about his life that was published in Nigeria. So there's there's no way to contact the, the publishers because you know, there's no phone numbers or something. And 
through, I don't know, a lot of persistence and calling the wrong people, I eventually mm. got his phone number, which was already quite this, you know, adventure because you have to convince completely random people in Nigeria that you are legit and you're also, you're worth their time. And um, and eventually we talked and I had bad recording equipment because yeah, I, I was so focused on other things. So just had to like put my phone on speaker and have like uh, the laptop recording running next to it. And it's, it's very suboptimal, but it worked. And I got to ask my questions and got to learn a lot of stuff. And um, I did that in with uh, Mark Hershey. That's actually not an interview, but I just called him because I had so many questions about his shop. He runs Haven Press in Brooklyn. And I think I saw works that he published online. There is um, a Norwegian mezzotinto artist called Tom Cosmo, who makes amazing works, who I've been aware of because I've been in, in Norway for a while, but you know we never got to talk or something. So then it was quite nice to have this sort of badge, like self-applied badge. We're like, oh, yeah. I make interviews. So yeah. uh, hey, I can just <laughs> reach out to you. And people are like, oh yeah, you make interviews. That's totally cool. That's legit. Uh, <laughs> and then you could talk to people. I'd love to chat a little bit deeper kind of about sure. Blackheart Press. And is it a collaborative studio? Is it just sort of the name for your own practice? Sort of define like what it is and when you started it. Uh, yeah, that's good. Um, Blackheart Press is... It's not a collaborative studio. It's the name for my printmaking online presence. Blackheart Press originally was a blog. It then moved to Tumblr in 2011. And it's sort of now kind of more or less transitioned onto Instagram. Um, it's an umbrella for, for all these things. It's an umbrella for the visits to all these print shops that I've done, because I've been quite fortunate in terms of travel grants or travel possibilities in the last years uh, and, and having this network. It seemed only natural to sort of visit all these shops. And it's it also is where I post my own works and where I post about the shop that I'm setting up now. It helps to be name consistent, at least, so that you can be like, OK, don't know how the guy is called, but it's Blackheart Press on Instagram or Blackheart Press on Tumblr yeah. or something or YouTube, and it's very so. memorable too. It's like it's some right. you know names like that always stick in people's minds better than well. than human names, right? Like yes, so exactly. Yeah, yeah like I, I know most people by their Instagram names, and I'm like, yeah, what was their real name? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, Blackheart Press is a total ripoff of um, the band Blackheart Procession. Oh um, yeah, yeah. So Blackheart Press, you said it's it's sort of your own work. Do you want right. to talk about that a little bit and what your own mm. practice is personally and sort of what, what it looks like yeah. and where it comes from? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's like I'm kind of uh, currently I'm sort of reconnecting to that a bit because uh -huh. I've been I've been a fine art educator for the last five years, um, which means that uh, I'm not sure what the American equivalent is. I'm a junior lecturer. That's like kind of the lower or I was a junior lecturer because I've been let go and the shop's been closed. Um, but that's what I mainly did. And uh, if you do that on basically any any percentage level above 50, there's no time for yeah. your own art practice. At least I, d I didn't have the energy. I was like, as always, I admire everyone who's teaching and who gets to who gets anything done because when I come home, I'm like too tired to play video games. And, um, <laughs> and because I just need to, you know, rinse all the student questions out of my head and kind of think about something and then with whatever financial situations that you have as a as as you know low tier academia like you can't even afford a studio so yeah. you can work in a school studio but that means that whenever someone finds you there you're working 
like you know good luck like it's it's sunday night and uh and you wanted to do some quick conditioning but there's also two people in the shop and they ask you which is makes sense because you're the person that should be asked maybe not on sunday night but it's so hard to get get work done so um I make etchings and I make lithographs and since two, three years I've really gotten into this kind of Schnellpresse printing in this, you know, Ernst Hanke style. He's got his own great method of working and I'm trying to emulate and copy as much skill <laughs> mm. uh, as possible. I wish I had started earlier with that, but um, that's what I'm doing and uh, I, I draw skeletons. <laughs> That's the only thing I can draw, sort of, <laughs> and, and rain clouds. Um, that's sort of, if you like medieval prints, then sort of you've come across Memento Mori, Totentanz, Dance Macabre, Dance mm-hmm. of Death, yeah. uh, image traditions, and those, I feel, are, in those turbulent times uh, uh, right now, are as valid with all the um, environmental catastrophes looming as, as they were in the 1500s, mm-hmm. I think, so... To me, it seems valid. I will probably not get invited to a Biennale or something <laughs> due to relevance, but that's fine because they give me joy. No, I love that. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. I actually, I have my master's degree in the 16th century Northern European printmaking. When you're talking about like any of that kind of like dance of death, and obviously it's a little, it's a little bit later than like some of the... Mm-hmm plague and that kind of thing but I always love that work and I I wrote a paper about um I'm embarrassed to say his name in front of someone who's a native German speaker but the very Americanized way of saying it is Hans Balden Green or um so you know and sort of his his witches and uh, everything like that I I loved studying that and um and I can definitely, I, now that you say that, I can really see that in your work because your skeletons certainly have a life to them, like the ghoulies um, from that time. And, and as you say, like all the, all the uncertainties and catastrophes that we know of that seem to be on the horizon, you know, let alone those that we don't, uh, it does seem a very appropriate time. Yeah, it's sad but true. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but like I feel like I I don't have an artist practice in the way that I live off my art or something or or strive mm-hmm. to live off because that seems that seems impossible somehow. And I love collaborative printing, so uh, I think that that's always going to be a part of my practice as well is to work with others. Uh, yeah. Ideally, like I'd like to continue teaching because that's super fun. But yeah. um. I'm also setting up my own shop in the middle of nowhere in Sweden. So um, eventually I'm going to have some, some place to invite people to. And actually, if we, can, if we can double back for a second. When you were talking sure. about your own work, you were saying you were inspired by, I think it was, was it a German word? or? I probably said Totentanz. It's just a German word for a dance of death. Oh, okay. Um, but you know, it has this. It's, it has this strong image tradition. Like I guess there's a form. There's there's usually how many other like depending on on who did it. Like there's so many artists that did a Totentanz at some point in in their career. There's Notke. There's the famous Lübecker Totentanz, like the Dance Macabre or Dance of Death from Lübeck, and it's usually it's skeletons dancing with or not dancing, but like it's skeletons and and people people of certain crafts and and you you know the the higher point being that death comes to everyone so with Holbein there's like he's a really lovely series where there's one where 
it's called Death and the Infant, where, you know, um, the skeleton leads the child out of the, the home or something. There's the king, there's the rich person, there's, you know, the, everybody. And kind of it, it shows that uh, this is the, the one unifying quality that we all have is that we're mortal. Like no matter how, how big the companies you're running and no matter how, how, how much other things or how poor you are. And I guess that was kind of why this connected with a lot of people, I suppose. And I think they were meant to pacify, to, you know, say people it's okay that there's so many injustices because eventually... Like I'm, I'm, I think it, it, this must have been something from the rich people that commissioned these works, also to be like, okay, you know, eventually, right. <laughs> eventually, this is like just, just remember, we're all. Uh, it's fine that I have more than you, right? Um, yeah. From the church, and and I think that's kind of that that connected really well. And then since it's skeletons, and you can't tell, especially not the, the anatomically incorrect way I draw them, you can't tell sex mm-hmm. or race from a skeleton, which is also wonderful because that's, again, the uni- unifying quality we all have. So, yeah, but I think the word was just taught in tons. And so do you think that the longevity of an image like that and the fact that, you know, you're still drawn to it, I'm still drawn to it, do you think it comes from the same places that it did in its inception, that it is this unifier that it does have a kind of dark comfort in that? Or do you think that it's evolved in some ways? Yeah, I, th- I think it, there is like a unifier. I don't, I'm not sure if it, if it has evolved. I think it's kind of, it's the most basic thing, sort of in a way. Mm-hmm. And and of course, it's, it's more fun when you're young and kind of cocky and <laughs> n- none of your friends have passed or something. And, you know, no, nobody that's close to you has fallen ill or, or passed. And you can just, you know, be carefree about it but as you move on and i think we all have stories in in our lives that touch mortality in in one way or another and usually in in a way that's really close then you realize like okay it is actually a strange sort of thing it's like that it's these days it's so removed i think uh, from our considerations in a lot of ways because science is amazing and you can resuscitate people and and so many things that were you know, when you look at artists and you read their biography and they're young and promising and then they get the flu and die, right. uh, like Sheila or something. And then you're like, oh, damn. Uh, but soon an- antibiotics will no longer work and we might get there again. And so I think it's that's why it works with, with so many people. And so maybe you have the humor that you enjoy it and you can see kind of a sense in it or maybe... Maybe it's too close. Like I, I've gotten both reactions for the Kickstarter to move the press. I was at Ernst's place in Switzerland um, and we printed. And so out of a whim, I decided that one of the prints was going to be a portrait of him, uh, which is a skeleton because I, I can't draw. <laughs> I could, but it would just be like a cartoonish kind of thing mm-hmm. where you recognize him because the hair or something. Mm-hmm. So I drew a skeleton and, and the skeleton holds like a lethal roller and I drew his dog as well, and the dog's name is Happy, and it's a white dog. So I drew this little skeleton dog sitting at the feet of that skeleton, and there's a, the bar of color, and it's Ernst's favorite colors. It's like a blue fading into a green that's in German. It's Nilgrün, Nile green. Not sure if that's a proper, if, if English-speaking people know what that means, but like Nilgrün, it's a really nice color, and you kind of need it if you want to mix a nice turquoise. 
with, without using white, then you need that kind of green. If you just want the white from the paper and transparency. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, so we made this print and we, we're printing all the colors from the same stone. So the image comes up fairly fast, like you, you're, you're shaping it fairly quick. But you're also, as, as I draw the background, that's the first time we see the background. The, the background plate or stone doesn't exist until it's time to sort of resensitize the stone and, and draw that part. And so as it comes up and we're looking at the proofs and we're deciding, um, we as Ernst, uh, his wife Erika, and me, the three people in the shop, and we look at the, the print and uh, say like, okay, should we should we go? Should we commit the entire stack of the edition to this this background? And I said, yeah. And Erika, she's like, oh my god, this is perfect. We're going to use this for the death, you know, announcement in the newspaper. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, I. Oof. I, I didn't mean it like that, you know. I was just like, I was just a humorous kind of, uh, yeah. like a, a little touch, you know, to, to what has essentially become a really good friend of mine. So for a moment, it was like funny that I was the one taken aback, yeah. and uh, yeah. Ant loved it, his wife loved it, and I'm not sure what the dog thought, but you know, we're <laughs> everybody was kind of like positive about the image, and and it wasn't macabre or something at all. It, it fit really well, and um, and because they had the right sense of humor to sort of see that and kind of enjoy that image and uh, I've had other people that were like okay this is too much mm. too many skeletons and it's too close for some comfort and and that's fine as well and I think that's something I always try to be respectful of yeah uh, yeah but I, that's that's why the humor has to be in there in one way or another yeah it's a couple of things kind of come to mind when you're telling that story and one is that I think sometimes it's easier to joke about your own death than to hear someone else joking about theirs but also, I think, you know, in terms of that kind of sensitivity, I think it can also comes in waves. You know, if something happens where I've experienced death close to me, you know, there's always a time period where I, you know, I can't, it, 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 I, you know, I, I notice it in a more sensitive way. And then, you know, six months on, I'm ready to listen to a, a murder podcast and make jokes again. Right. You know, it's, it is interesting how we, at least for me, it's, it's cyclical between the reality right. and the way that our brain kind of separates it or, or gets its coping mechanisms back, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, and there's also so many dimensions to it. I have this friend, Katie Mack. Uh, she's amazing. She's an astrophysicist. Mm. And uh, her favorite topic is, I think, the end of the universe, <laughs> as we know it. And it's amazing because it's it's going to be spectacular. We won't be around when it happens or we don't even know, I guess. Uh, like I shouldn't be talking about it because I have no idea. I just sort of know what she talks about in, in her, her lectures and in her poetry and her words that she puts out. Mm. And But it's amazing and it's all encompassing. Uh, and it's fascinating. It's like absolutely fascinating. It will also most likely, you know, be the end of all things because that's mm -hmm. you know, that, that's what the end of the universe is. But it's uh, there's something sort of comforting about it that, you know, there there is an end of sorts. And I suppose in my work, this kind of comes back also to, I mentioned this fire in 2016. That fire like ate my entire archive oh my of... Of all the works that I made until then, from say you know 2006 when I started to 2016 when that house sort of had the roof burned down and whatever the water kind of messed up the entire place and we couldn't get in because it was whatever. Long story. Anyway, um, all the works are gone, 
uh, and you're like, oh, okay, good. So um, what do I do? I've recently applied for a job in Germany. I didn't get it, but um, at the I was invited to the interview and uh, they wanted to have physical uh, work samples, which mm. is yeah, old-fashioned. I was like, okay, whatever. And so I brought this A4 folder, like like letter size folder with three random prints that I had lying, you know, in my apartment, like complete randomness that they were there and didn't get destroyed together with my studio that was, you know, located in my office because that's where it was all the time anyway. And I was like, okay, these are all the works I have, you know, um, full disclaimer, there's a lot more and I can show them online and show them whatever. But if you want to see physical works, these are some new works that I've printed. And this here is like my, my archive. And there's no, there's no archive of student works anymore. There's no archive of um, works that I've made of projects that I'm really proud of because um, they're gone. Mm. And, um, and that's cool. That's, I'm fine with it now. I've been <laughs> in shock and now I'm good. Uh, but it, it's, it's still kind of at, at certain times it comes back and you're like, oh, yeah, you'd like to see those prints. Yeah, no, they're gone. Or, you know, I'm not going to make any money with them ever even if there's no interest in whatever works I made, because uh, they're gone. So I guess that kind of also helps with the entire, the whole subject, <laughs> kind of, or the, the fascination with it some yeah. way. I don't know. I guess you have to relate to it. No, I, I, I get it in, in a sense that a, a couple of, it was actually the week or maybe even the day that I launched the Pine Copper Line website. I accidentally deleted all of my files Mm-hmm. besides my pine copper lime files like the fi- copper lime files i just had happened to put in a different section of the computer and then i had just deleted everything you know everything i'd written in graduate school all of my photos photos of my beloved dead dog who was my world like was all mm-hmm. gone and it was jarring but also weirdly comforting you know because there was a kind of a cleanness about it, a weird sense of bittersweet freedom. <laughs> it's sort of like, oh, I don't have to worry about carrying that around anymore. Like, I think the sense of loss will later be the same because, I mean, who has physical photos these days? And uh, so I think if you kind of, you know, lose some hard disks now or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, I think this is, this is as dramatic as burning up your old photo albums or something. Right. Yeah. It's probably even oh, yeah. more widespread. Right. It's it's all you have, and you're like, oh, it was just digital information. There's no box in the attic with old negatives or something. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just gone. So that's how it goes. There, there's no point in dwelling too much, I suppose, mm-hmm. on that. There's a kind of like freedom in not being given a decision, if that makes sense, because. You, yeah. You're, yeah. <laughs> well, I'd like to have my stuff back, you know, just for the record. But uh, <laughs> uh, of course, it's like uh, it's there. There's some things that you just can't can't change then, and you just gotta gotta live with it yeah. or something. I guess that's that's if you once you've managed to accept that. I think there's this wonderful scene in The Simpsons where Homer is mortally ill or something, and he goes through the five or seven whatever stages of acceptance within. Like he has, he gets like this leaflet and he goes through those states within like 10 seconds. Yeah. And it was like, your progress is remarkable or something like, uh, and you're like, all right, keep good. That's done. So yeah, he's eaten the puffer fish, I think is what's happened. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's just, it's such a brilliant early 
early yeah. Simpsons yeah, episode. Never miss an opportunity for a pop culture reference. So I would, though, because we've talked about it, because I'm curious, maybe kind of wrap up by talking about your sauna project, which is right. yeah, the other side of things. Right. Uh, so it's not my project. It's I'm just kind of uh, its most devoted disciple. Art sauna is a communal sauna experience. It was created in 2014. It's a sauna on a trailer. A sauna is a, it's a Finnish thing. <laughs> it's a room that you heat up to about as hot as you like it or can get it. And, um, and then you throw water onto the stones and uh, it creates a steam. And the Finnish word for that is lölu. lölu. Um, and uh, that steam is uh, it's amazing. And, and you just stay inside for as long as you want to or can stand it or you know feel that it's fun. And then you can go out. And preferably you go out to a really cold place because by the time you leave the sauna, you're really hot. And the best place for that is uh, a hole in the ice. Uh, in Finnish, that's called Avanto. In Swedish, it's Isvak, or like you know, uh, and that's that's the art sauna in short. The art sauna is the brainchild of Anton Vireus. Uh, Anton was a printmaking project student in at the Royal Institute of Art in Stockholm in the first year when I started working there, and I had lived in Finland for the last four years approximately, where I was working as an intaglio printer in the shop of Tula Lehtinen printing lots of cool stuff with her, for her. And um, the only way you can have friends in Finland is if you drink, which I don't, mm -hmm. or you have sauna, which I love. So, you know, I was good there. I moved to Stockholm because I got the job and Anton being Finnish or half Finnish, we made some prints uh, that were actually posters for the sauna, sort of, or like drawings of the sauna. Uh, and so we... We talked about it and he was like, oh, if you miss Finnish sauna, and I was like, yes, I do. He was like, you should come to the art sauna because it's, um, it's a trailer and we just drive it out to, like every city has these sort of off spaces, like not, a, not abandoned spaces, but kind of um, uh, here it's in Stockholm, it's uh, Liljeholmstranden. It's close to a concrete factory. Uh, it has an old um, ink color factory next to it. That's like decommissioned and sort of, you know, it's full of graffiti and kind of kids that get a thrill out of skating the fence and, mm. you know, skating around the ruins or something. And it also has these piers. Stockholm has a lot of like public bathing places, but these piers are in a really unwelcoming area. It's There's um, old train tracks that were, I, I suppose, supply trains for the... Um, the concrete factory passed there every once in a while. And um, that's where Anton or I, mostly Anton though, drives the sauna. And then you just park it and heat it up and you chop the wood and everyone's welcome. And that's that's kind of mostly the Finnish spirit. And mm -hmm. uh, usually people are decently dressed in all this, uh, but there's there's also some, some hardcore people that <laughs> feel that clothing don't belong in the sauna. And, um, yeah. That, that's most likely going to happen at some point, too. Uh, <laughs> so I had friends visiting from New York, and I was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm not sure how how down you are with, you know, our loose European ways, but, you know, I, there, there might be a naked person in that sauna. We'll just see. Uh, but most likely they'll all be dressed, and we come there, and the door opens, and Auntie steps out, and he's a Finnish carpenter, and he's bucking it. And I'm like, hi, Auntie. And he's, like, super casual, because... He's in the sun all the time. So he's like, hey, yeah. how are you? Like, 
just side glance at my friends and they're like, it's actually, it's PJ and, um, and Audrey, uh, PJ, the, the Riso printer. Uh, I think he's at Robert Blackburn's. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New York. But anyway, he was there and he was just looking at me like, okay. And I'm like, yeah, that's welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Auntie just goes and does this like backflip into the water and, uh, and we're having a great time and they're having sauna and we're all having, yeah, en- enjoying it. And Audrey ends up making a painting about it. And that's, that spirit is kind of what the art sauna is all about. It's uh, it's a lot of friends that I've made in the sauna, which is really helpful for me because that meant I got to meet people that were not printmakers or my students right. or colleagues because yeah. that's literally everyone I met because I moved to Sweden because of um, job. So, you know, we know how that is. You only hang out with those kind of people. And it's a huge lesson for me because I'm not necessarily... Maybe in 2014, I wouldn't have been that welcoming as I am now. But it's if someone else teaches you how to, what it means to really sort of open the door. And that could be the door to your sauna or the door to your shop and be like, yeah, you can, you know, you're welcome. You can come in. You, you can have the funniest people sort of showing up. And at, at times, you know, it's, it's way easier to just like keep it private and mm-hmm. keep it locked and so no surprises and it's nice um but once you've dared to kind of be inviting it's really fun there's you know random french tourists that are like what are you doing here and we're like we're having sauna and you're like mm-hmm. you can join you're like, really and you're like yeah just you know hop on in and suddenly you have you know a french couple in their underwear sitting in the sauna and, and having a great time and it's december and then they go swim and it's it's amazing and it, it costs energy because it's it is you're sacrificing a certain form of private space but you're sharing and um, and I think that's why Anton's project is so amazing and that's why I am there so much volunteering and whatever you know chopping holes in I love chopping holes in ice uh, or chopping wood mm. so lots of chopping yeah that, uh, that's the sauna oh that sounds like such a great project yeah he's it's great I think you should like I don't know what, what the deal with Stockholm is, but I feel that every year you should get like one award or something because um, there's certain initiatives to kind of, you know, we talk so much about like how printmaking is democratic because you can, you know, lower the price and reach more people. And the same way the sauna project is sort of, you know, for the people, like because you can pay volunteer what you want if you want to, you know, pay for the wood because it's not free. And someone had to build that thing and like it's on a trailer. So it has to, you know, it, someone needs to drive it out with a car and it's work, but it's, it's also free and there's demand for it in a certain way. Like the city needs kind of social spaces and it's a spot in the, in the city that is sort of, like I said, overlooked. Um, it, it's not shady, but it's also, it's not, oh, how lovely by the beach or something, you know, but it's a way to reclaim that certain space and it's a way to sort of say okay you could make this into more parking lots or into random overpriced apartments for the people that can pay such expensive apartments in the center of town or you could make it into like a social you know place that would benefit everyone living there mm-hmm. and one opportunity is this sort of would the sauna be the sauna where it parks it's there's no parking lot it's like stands on the tracks and so Every once in a while, depending on where it stands, there's different securities that are responsible for, you know, this area. And usually the, the project itself is so charming and so so honest in itself that um, we've never gotten a ticket yet. 
but there's people there they're like you can't stand here and you're like yeah but we're having sauna so why don't you join us and they're like we can't because you know i have to tell you guys that you can't park here but then you know you're like okay what do we do because now there's like you know seven people in underwear sort of dripping wet standing in front of you we can move the sauna but where do we move it to and then you know they're like oh like i don't want to ruin your day but if you like drive 20 meters further come this this sign my jurisdiction ends and mm. it's someone else's problem if you stand there it's fine because then i don't get trouble with my boss and we're like all right you know we can do that sure we move 20 meters further at the end of the sign but like that it's sort of it's so far it's there's never been a problem with it and i think that comes from the sort of the niceness of <laughs> the whole thing yeah it's like i mean Satoru, the guy from Japan, he had sauna with us there. It's, oh. um, yeah, he was like, all right, now we're jumping. I was like, yes, Yeah. now we jump into the water. And well, yeah. It was lovely. And the so, Japanese, of course, have their whole very old right. communal warm bath, you know, right. tradition. So I'm sure it was like felt right at home. Yeah. And yeah. you get to have tattoos. So that's cool. Right. Uh, which you don't get to have in Japan. But yeah. So can you let people know the best way to find you and follow you and offer you teaching positions? Uh, yeah, the best way is Blackheart Press um, on Instagram. It's just Blackheart Press, one word. It's blackheartpress at gmail.com. If you want to send me an email, I think that's, that's the easiest way. S simple as that, yes. Yeah, no, simple is good, as I said, so you can remember it. So, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you about everything. And, um, yeah, I hope we can stay in touch and have you back on sometime to, to dive deeper. I'd love to talk more about African printmaking and international exchange and your time in China and the polar graph. Like, I had all kinds of notes we didn't get right. to. So, right. um, um, I hope we can yeah. do it again. Sure, absolutely. I'd love to. All right. Sounds good. Thanks again, Patrick. Have a good night. Good. Thank you. The same. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when I chat with Craig from the Awagami Paper Factory. And let me tell you, I was blown away by the incredibly ambitious projects they're up to there and the eight generations of history of the factory. Craig talks about their collaborations with artists, calls for art, opportunities for residencies, maybe drop that they're looking to hire a master printer in the future. <laughs> we also get into the differences between Western paper and washing, don't call it rice. Plus, Awagami has generously donated 50 sheets of additioning paper for a giveaway that'll take place as soon as the episode drops over on the Pine Copper Lime Instagram. So check out the link in the show notes and join me there. This episode, like all episodes, is written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.